0: Wombside Chats, a podcast where every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we sit down to discuss The Paradox of Social Democracy, The American Case, by Robert Brenner. I'm Jake, I'm with Communist League Tampa, and joining me tonight is Donald.
1: Hey, it's Donald from the Communist League of Tampa, here
2: the side of the swamp.
3: Rosa? Rosa here from
0: Emancipation. Lexi.
2: Hey, Lexi from Emancipation. Haven in a Heartless World.
0: Okay, cool. So...
2: That's the cast for tonight.
0: (sighs) This week, this week... It's been we've we've been on an interesting run of readings lately. Um, You know, we did some uh, some crazy right wing shit we did uh, last week uh, with like it's, uh, you know, ontology of the butthole. And this week we get back to good old Robert Brenner uh, with his pretty, pretty straightforward, you know, uh, meat and potatoes, Marxist analysis um this is really my safe space like this is this is the this is the stuff that raised me as a marxist you know what i'm saying yeah Um,
1: well yeah robert brenner and we're reading his piece on um social democracy yeah the paradox of social democracy paradox of social democracy by robert brenner this is the the american case
0: yeah the full title is for 100 clarity the paradox of social democracy colon the american case
1: yeah, so he's looking specifically at America, and he's really, you know, kind of using his what he calls no bullshit Marxist approach.
0: This was originally Marxism published in um, 1985, actually, which yeah, is interesting was... because so much of it seems uh, particularly relevant today for reasons that we'll get into. But first, mm-hmm. maybe maybe we should talk a little bit about who Robert Brenner is for those who yeah are, are...
1: yeah. Robert Brenner was basically a Marxist historian who made a lot of breakthroughs in the history of the transition to capitalism. He kind of fought against the monthly review school and the um, world systems analysis school, but kind of saw capitalism as just like a progressive expansion of markets until eventually there was like a rupture. And he argues that really the rupture was more of like a change in class relations that happened in the countryside and he has a lot of detailed historical work on this, and so he's famous for that. And his interpretation of the transition to capitalism has kind of launched a whole school called political Marxism. And he also does um, writings on, you know, things like unions and political strategy. And this writing would fall into that case. Another thing to mention is that he is influenced by the analytical Marxist, but he kind of differentiates himself from them at the same time. Yeah,
2: he distances himself from the analytical Marxists. But But you can see the
1: influence here through kind of like the rational choice arguments, for example. It
2: it needs to be said, this guy was part of the the original September groups like uh, that were sort of the the beginning of analytical Marxism. Um, He was part of who he was arguing against was G.A. Cohen's kind of productive forces led um, historical materialism. So I think it's really non-negligible. I think Brenner is basically the paradigm-defining analytical Marxist. And nobody calls him that because analytical Marxists are bad, right? So Brenner's not bad, so he can't be an analytical Marxist.
1: Yeah, but you really can't (laughs) separate his work from the analytical Marxist influence. And I'd also argue the Althusserian influence. Because I think that there is actually, Charles Post even admits this, that like, his earlier um, ideas, a lot of it was influenced by Althusser's like idea that the, the you know the relations of production take pre- predominance over the forces of production.
0: Is his like lack of association with analytic Marxism has to do with the? Does that have to do with the fact that his work is so heavily mistor- historical in orientation? Um, because, you know, a lot of his stuff is like stuff like, you know, merchants and revolution and stuff, which are the kind of these long tomes about, you know, the transition to capitalism out of feudalism. Um,
2: I mean, I guess that's one way of seeing it. I, the way I see it is that, you know, he was approaching analytical Marxism as an economic historian,
0: like using the
2: norms, using the norms of economic history, mainstream economic history to, quote, do Marxism. Right.
1: Yeah, and I think he's very willing to critique a lot of the ideas about our analytical Marxists because he has that historical background. He's he's kind of distanced from that field mostly because of the bad rep that field gets, basically.
2: <laughs> yeah, but if you if you actually look at like the nuts and bolts of his economic critique, he um accepts what's called uh Okishio theorem, which is sort of it's understood that using a certain like method set of methodological parameters, it's actually impossible for uh, a change in like product, uh, productive efficiency, to cause the rate of profit to fall, um, and so although it's kind of interesting because Brenner defends a falling rate of profit through yeah, other so we through, through other say, means, he defends it through other that, means. Like,
1: there's a our economy has been in like a profit like decline since the 1970s, basically. Yeah, but, he, but and this but, piece he talks about the capitalist cycle a lot. So, but it's he, obviously he doesn't reject it. He just probably But come. he
2: he rejects Marx's formulation of it. He he do, he doesn't disagree that there is the overall tendency, but if you ever look into his kind of work about what makes the rate of profit fall, it's sort of a bunch of ad hoc kind of mechanisms that all kind of come together. It's not yeah, my understanding it's not is he it's not kind of Marxist
1: as like the, yeah. the anarchy of the market basically.
2: Yeah, yeah, which is actually, kind of...
0: That's, that's what's kind of weird about his work, actually. Um, and that's something that he definitely goes into, like, in um, in some of his more... like He has, like, a whole theory about it that often comes up. And you can see kind of the development of his ideas about sort of the neoliberal era here. Uh, but maybe they aren't, like, fully crystallized until, you know, he later would later publish... Uh, what was the Economics of Global Turbulence, I think.
2: Yeah, yeah. so on the, on that level, look, I'm a defender of the analytical Marxist because of the basic points they get right about method... And I think to defend Brenner as an analytical Marxist is to kind of be like, look, it doesn't have to be so bad. Look at this guy. <laughs>
0: um, okay, so should we get into the piece then? Do it so, up. So, so basically, what he's talking about is the emergence, the kind of original emergence of um, the DSA, like in the nineteen eighties, and he talks about the kind of the overall idea that basically entryism into the democratic party and existing trade unions can help to push them left and he basically goes through all the different examples of you know that existed up until that point of why that has failed and would continue to fail yeah the whole
1: article is basically what it seems to be is a historical polemic against the argument that you know we can push the democrats to the left in order to build a, um, you know, a, not even a, a, a socialist movement, but a, kind of a broad progressive movement seems to be what um, the Democrats argue for. And he's saying even like reform isn't possible unless you have actual struggle against the capitalists.
0: Well, he also seems to argue that basically because the profit rate is in decline and because capitalism, at least in the United States, is not like in this expansive phase, the capacity for workers to make gains is greatly diminished because the capacity for capitalists to make gains is greatly diminished. And so basically what's going to happen is the capitalists are going to, they're not going to be willing to make concessions in order to maintain any kind of labor peace because they're so desperate to continue, you know, their own processes of accumulation that, that the old sort of strategies are completely void at this point.
1: Yeah. And he makes an important point that there's an objective class distinction between the kind of the labor bureaucracy and the kind of uh, petty bourgeois managerial cast that exists within these orgs and the rank and file that you know they, they they basically have an interest in the continuation of capitalism because that's how they reproduce their privileged position in society and so their, their interests are separate from the class interest of the, the workers and so that basically creates a problem where workers are simply like pawns for the capitalist parties to get votes out but have no actual influence on the parties and he uses the democrats as the example here very intensely
0: right and one thing that he does like torpedo is the latent idea that you still see amongst people who you feel like should probably know better at this point is this idea that democrats and the establishment of Trade unions, the Democratic Party will sooner or later, by v- virtue of their repeated demonstrations of failure, will have to go left because it will become apparent that the kind right. of like centrist ideology that they have is untenable and doesn't win. And that they'll have to sort of embrace a social democratic platform of some kind in order to make gains. In the, and it'll become in their rational self-interest to do so. And he argues pretty vociferously that no, that is in fact not the case, and yeah. it's not in their interest and never will be.
2: No, yeah, and what they'll do instead is bend over backwards to cut the worst fucking deals, the mo- like give the most ground to like try to pretty please ensure their position, like, and that that emerges as their rational strategy every time, all the time,
0: and. Well, because what he argues basically is that there are certain points in class struggle where it comes down to a direct confrontation with the bourgeoisie and sometimes also the state. And in those confrontations, either you succeed and get what you want or you're completely annihilated. And so it is not of the interests of the people who are in these kind of positions to take things to that point because they would risk uh, their entire careers and their entire material and posi- social position in society. And they're just not prepared to do that.
1: Because there's but- just a chance that the whole thing could fail and they'll just end up ruining their careers anyway. Even if, you know, they kind of sympathize with the workers, they're still, like, going to be like, oh, I don't know, guys, this is a bit too much. And I've seen this shit, like, in play, you know, in local politics. Not going to say too much about that, but, like... <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Because like the
0: the working class, the worst thing that happens, I mean, I guess people could get killed if things, if it comes down to like a confrontation with the National Guard or like private hired thugs or whatever. So I guess they do have something at stake, but there is also, you know, the the stakes are also that they get fired and have to go work another shitty job. You know what I mean? So it's like the stakes are, for them, it's like they, they have a strong incentive not to bring things to that kind of headlong confrontation. And so what this will mean over the long term is that, you know, the, the Organizations that they command will sort of gradually wither away.
1: So, but Brenner yeah. does argue that basically, kind of using his rational choice methodology, that in times of economic contraction, like the working class does actually have in its rational interest to support social democracy because it's the most viable way for them to make gangs at that time. And so he does kind of say, well, listen, there's a reason why workers go to social democracy. But then he argues that in times of economic contraction, when there's a crisis, that that's kind of when the possibility for the working class to intervene is possible. Yeah. And, and, um... but, it also, it, but then it leaves out the question, because his solution to the problem is, well, you have to have mass action and direct action from below in order to pressure reform and actually win reform in the first place, nonetheless actually pose a real revolutionary alternative but the question is, like, what does this, you know, how how does it, where does this mass action come from, and what do you do in periods where there
0: is kind of a labor piece through social
1: democracy?
0: Well, he does kind of seem to subscribe in here to movementism a little bit.
1: That was um, my that was my concern actually, yeah. is that he is very much arguing a kind of spontaneous direct actionist line, where it's like, well, the social movement is everything, and the political representatives are. You know, they just are, you know, doing what the social movement makes them do. But I think it's just, it's just way too uh, dualistic and simplistic of a viewpoint. That was my real only critique of this.
2: I mean, one could critique it of that, but it has a pretty solid way of getting there. It's it presents you. All right. Look, this is this is their kind of cost benefit. It doesn't do it in like any, you know, formal sense. You don't get the fucking punit squares or something. But um. Brenner is is using the same tools as an economic historian that he used to describe the transition from feudalism to capitalism to describe why American social democracy is always arrested. And he is also drawing a bit from the experiences of European social democracy. And in his discussion of the American case, he's certainly not like it's it's certainly not limited to the American case. He is also by way of yeah. talking about the United States, making comments on actual social democracy in Europe.
1: And just well, he- to be clear, he's not talking about like revolutionary social democracy from you know eighteen eighty to nineteen fourteen. He's talking about, you know, what that became in the Cold War, which was basically the left wing of imperialism.
0: Right. He brings up, he explicitly brings up the Mitterrand government as an example yeah, of. Yeah, he's talking
1: about the Mitterrand government. He's talking about the Nordic model. Like, that's what he's talking about when he says social democracy.
0: Your your faves are safe for now.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we can still like Kotsky and Bebel. Yeah. Well, you know.
3: When I was reading this, I actually was kind of reminded of uh, when insurrections die by a uh, gillis davay
2: oh that's interesting
3: like well basically they sort of have like a weirdly similar argument of, of why like parties and unions in general and like the sort of black middle class activists sort of click like why that they both sort of failed and like just in terms of being left wing like there's a similar critique, but Brenner obviously fleshes it out more saying that the, these sort of like bureaucrats have like a different class interest from their rank and file, whereas Dave, it's sort of like ad hoc. The parties, the parties and the unions were the reason why the revolutionary movements of the 20th century failed. They, they, they just didn't want revolution hard enough.
0: But that's you can't, you can't apply that argument to the United States because there never really was like a mass working class party. You know what well, I mean? There
3: was
1: a, I would say that there was a very violent and militant mass working class labor movement in the United States. But there was never an actual class party in that sense. In the sense that I you mean, have lots of militant strike actions and stuff, but they never... It, the class never coalesced to the point where it was actually a political subject beyond, you know, very basically, you know, by the time we even had a mass CP in the U.S., it was already liquidating its class conf- like content and in, in the popular front. And so in the U.S., I think there was a real distinct failure to merge socialism with the workers movement that kind of created this weird dynamic.
0: But, you know, it, it failed, too, like, in the absence of some party, like, holding back, like, the mass consciousness of the working class. I mean, can we really say that American workers are actually better off than their counterparts in Western Europe? I don't think so. Not don't oh, no. By, no, by no, no. By very few metrics, can we even, you know, say that that's... I mean, I guess we can have guns here, as many guns as we want, if you can afford them. But I, mean, that. Yeah, I mean, you're going to need them.
1: Well, oh, I mean, social <laughs> democracy in western europe was way more successful because there was already a past successful revolutionary movement kind of you know in those countries and right. so the lack of that in the u.s you know the fact that socialists were always kind of a minority of petty bourgeois cranks and a minority of super militant workers it never became you never had a party like the spd or the finnish social this democratic social democratic party or be a Italian Socialist Party I'm, never had like real parties like that in the United States.
3: I'm, I mean, I never meant to imply that they were exactly the same, like obviously the American situation would be incredibly more tepid than the European situation, which which was more full-blown revolutionary, but it, it's the same sort of argument it's the same sort of argumentation for why the workers' movement, the proletarian movements uh, happened in both the United States and Europe were generally limited. They were limited through, like, party apparatus and union bureaucrats and a- yeah, middle class activists, because, well, Robert Brenner actually gives more of an explanation, which is they have different class interests. Where, as Dave, yeah. it's,
1: but I think, it's like, more... but Brenner doesn't reject unions and parties as such, and he seems less skeptical of organization as Dave. He just said that you can't simply use political parties and unions in order to get what you want from capitalists. But you actually have to have a mass proletarian base that can actually challenge class enemies.
2: Yeah, and stand apart
1: in order to get that. So he's not actually, you know... Whereas as Dave would say, well, the party itself is a form of, you know, representation that keeps the workers from achieving what they need, and the unions are just meeting between them and capital, so we need to break from these institutions and have, like, a spontaneous insurrection, whereas Brenner seems to be saying, like, no, we need to have parties and unions, but it needs to be connected to a real social base, and we need to build this social base.
2: I mean, in Rose's defense, I mean, the argumentation that Brenner is giving is you know pretty close, or if he does a better job of arguing that that there's like a structural problem. Yes, That, yes. that then like anything in the communizer tradition does actually the <clears throat> and the reason Jake hates it when I bring up endnotes, but the reason why endnotes is means like does do, is doing anything interesting to me is because they're working off of some of the best in analytical Marxism to try to make this same point. Well,
1: some of them are literal students of Brenner. So yeah, no, that's They're right. obviously and, like the one thing that Clegg I John Clegg
2: and Benenow. yeah. For that's
0: the record, for the record, I do not hate it when you specifically bring up endnotes. I just don't want everything to turn into a debate about endnotes. That's all. That's Fair enough.
2: Well,
1: the, say, I'll just say this about endnotes is that where they are best is economic analysis. And it's obvious that they got those like skills from... Yep. Company. Yeah. I think I think Brenner really does provide a very good economic structural analysis for why social democracy fails. And I think an important part of it is in the 1930s with the the development of the, the New Deal and the way that the Communist Party liquidated itself into the New Deal essentially and basically ended any kind of class independent political representation for the workers. And so basically any kind of political activity of the working class therefore was channeled into the democratic party and so i think that the the roots of the situation we're in we really have to look at you know the um really have to look at the uh popular front and the new deal and how these things were actually very conservative relatively for the labor movement even though a lot of liberal liberal historians celebrate them as like the heights of american leftism How these things are actually processes through which the working class became the the declassed subject that it is today.
3: Yeah, he basically has like two cycles of like defeat. The first one is like with the more traditional labor movement that he like goes from the 1930s to like the 1950s. And then he starts again, but this time with like a more black social movement, black power movement which he defines being defeated in the late, mid to late 70s.
1: Yeah, and and that's really what I meant when I talked about class, cycles of struggle before, is that you see kind of these cycles of ascendance and defeat of the working class, where, you know, the working class will form as a class and struggle, and then you have a period of defeat where a class is decomposed and atomized. And so he does point out that kind of tendency.
0: There, when, so t- I like how he um, he basically ties the kind of larger economic dynamics to the sort of emergence of the, the sort of polarization of um, class consciousness and the sort of emergence of capitalist realism as a sort of like social common sense. In such periods of downturn, the, mit- the minoritarian and restricted character of working class activity appears to be its natural and permanent character. It therefore tends to form the material basis, the starting point, for the formation of working-class political consciousness. Class-wide attacks upon the prerogatives of the capitalists, let alone the transition to socialism, are off the agenda. The majority of working-class people conclude, therefore, that they must accept as given the basic ground rules of the capitalist system, especially the requirement for capitalist profitability as the basis of the operation of the system. It is the apparent unchallengeability of a capitalist property in the capitalist state which forms the necessary, although insufficient, condition for the widespread acceptance within the working class of reformism. Um, so he, uh, he basically says that, like, yeah, ref- like he basically accepts as given that reformism is kind of the basic consciousness of the working class uh, in these, which is, I think, is basically true, like in these periods of downturn. Yeah,
1: um, and it makes well, sense because you, if your class has, if you, if your class has no collective institutions to struggle against the capitalists, like, you're basically your best bet is that the capitalists make as much money as possible and it literally trickles down to you so it's like trickle down economics becomes <laughs> popular amongst workers because of right. the you know, real situations they have to deal with and this also kind of relates to how Brenner does kind of say well you know it's it's just the rational choice that people make when they like you know sign up for the democratic party or not because it's you know it's it's yeah the option in these given economic circumstances and unless a, a political alternative exists and some kind of rupture in the political paradigm happens like that's just you know going to be the the rational choice
0: but if what underpins all of this is the economic downturn that began in the 1970s it's pretty clear that you know this is connected basically to the rising organic composition capital and that, that tendency isn't going to reverse without a massive crash and then which would probably be followed by i think a very brief accumulation period. So is there can things like degenerate to such a point that it would force the working class to fight back again or are we basically just like subject to like an ever increasing hell world? Well, i think I mean, Bre- Brenner
2: is really committed
1: to the side.
2: <laughs> well, i think Brenner is is very much committed to there being like basically class struggle is in the driver's seat, not, uh, productive forces, not capitalism. Um, so that there's some kind of, hence political Marxism, like, um, there's some kind of sense of agency afoot that is more the primary factor, which I I have to say, I find, I find too optimistic or too voluntaristic. Um, and I, I tend to think that there is stuff about GA Cohen or some of the, like structural, but not like, you know, bong rip post Althusserian like kind of types that are taking some form of economic and productive forces, even determinism as like commonsensical. I think there's something to that because if, if not, I have a hard time understanding why people don't fight back as much. I feel like it, it has to do with some kind of change there. But maybe right. that's just mystical shit. Well, maybe I think-,
1: think there's a structural reason why people don't fight back as much. I just think that it's possible to change, you know, through a political breakthrough, the working class could change, for example, because of, you know, a structural change. It's I think the yeah. Brenner basically thinks that, you know, like, in different periods, there's different types of work you have to do. And in a period of, like, this... It would be patiently building up, like rank and file, um, you know, oppositionist uh, factions within unions. That seems to be one of the things that he supports. Mm. And so, yeah, that that just it seems he doesn't seem to reject, you know, that any kind of political action is necessary. No, and I think
2: I I, and I think it's really uh, important that by using rational choice theory there's a way in which he's sort of dignifying uh decisions that he is you know also thinks are kind of against perhaps some like broader headier long-term interests and he's still calling them you know it's reformism as an ideology of the working class
1: yeah but that reformism is it's an ideology yeah. of the working class because of their real practical existence
2: which you know now that you mention it that does sound kind of althusserian because from what i from what I understand, I call that stuff, you know, like that seems like the it seems closer to like commodity fetishism or something where there is a reality of the situation that causes one to act in a way that might not be for the long term proletarian communist interest. But it's, a tr- it's true. You know, it's like it's it's a real part of reality and it's a rational response to reality. And it's not just false consciousness. You know? Yeah, it's like, not so
1: much false consciousness as just lacking socialist ideology. Well, <laughs> like, see, I think yeah, like, I that's don't... the problem. I feel like Marxists just be more honest and say, no, it's not false consciousness, we just haven't been converted to Marxism yet.
2: Like well, I mean I, I, <laughs> I, I also disagree with that though, because I think the way I ideology is used doesn't help get at um, people's rational responses to things.
0: Well I think it's actually a little bit of both. Like I actually in some ways I kind of agree with Chomsky in that we can't actually underestimate like how important it is that you know the the world the, the perspectives that are presented to people are on this very narrow band. And that's expanded to a certain extent with the internet. Um so I think that the fact that like these the Marxist ideas and that kind of framework is deliberately like withheld from people does actually have an effect on consciousness and does I think prevent people from Um, being able to you know put things within perspective um so as a result yeah i mean that but there are like material forces and social relations in society that will lead people to live a certain way of life in order to habituate themselves or in order to acclimate themselves to the system and thus what they look for out of ideology is a way to justify um, their own acclimation or they look for an ideology that um, allows them to sort of rationalize um what it is they're doing um does that make sense
2: yeah no i I think that makes sense but but for me the question is it's not a matter of being like i i'm a marxist i have the marxist ideology this marxism is a worldview it's more of a question of getting people to make uh to use like a kind of socialist reason or like um have kind of sort of collective responses to things it's to change the way rational action works, rather than to change people to think to sing. You know the Internationale.
0: Yeah, I see. What, I see what you mean, but I mean there does, I, I there is kind of a broader critique of society that is needed in order to, I think, get people. You know, because like, it's it's harder to do now because everything's been so subsumed to capitalism. Whereas before there was maybe kind of like an ingrained social memory of like pre-capitalist yeah. social relations that people could just kind of organically intuit. And I think now like a like a broader systemic critique is more necessary than ever in order to actually um in order to actually build class consciousness or to build like a some kind of resistance to capitalism.
3: Yeah. I, yeah. I'm I also think that there's like some unique situ unique problems that are specifically linked back to like the sort of decomposition of the working class that happened in the 70s that keep it from sort of being like a cycle that Brenner describes like a continuation of the cycle mainly like the increasing importance of automation in production specifically kind of undermines like the proletariat strength at the point of production which yeah. is what made the proletariat like politically a force
1: i don't agree actually i think that the (laughs) idea that the proletariat is politically a force because it can exercise withdrawal of its labor at the point of production is more of a trade unionist ideology than a marxist argument because marx's argument is the proletariat is a revolutionary force because it shares a common dispossession from the forces forces of production and therefore its forces collectively associate in order to fight for its needs, and so we could easily say that the point of organization is no longer the point of production, but proletarian districts per se. And so, sure, but Brenner is Brenner definitely doesn't Brenner. you know non exist. And so, I think that it's 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 a collective alienation and dispossession from the forces of, of the means of production that produces the proletarian condition it makes it act in a revolutionary way. Now so Donald, I think what, what what you're saying is very Marxism. is very
2: Marxian. It's like it's it's very much of Karl Marx, but the thing about the Marxist tradition is that it is very trade unionistic. And I it mean, is but I think that's because it, of
1: you know economistic distortions that come from you know trends like syndicalism and trade union. I, I think it, I think
2: it naturally kind of flows from Marx pointing to the existing trade union movement as the likely harbinger of proletarian freedom. Like if if that wasn't the case, I don't think people would make that association. But that's exactly yeah. what the Communist Manifesto is all about.
3: Yeah, well, specifically of the working man, he's the talking working about class. The movement, more so
1: in the Communist Manifesto, though he's uh, talking about a political party
2: perhaps um but the, he's i think he's talking about like a broader tendency. it's not just i um... mean and he
1: does see the importance of the union movement but he also recognizes the narrow guild-like craft elements of it and argues for industrial unionism and for you know the unemployed to be like <laughs> right. considered part of the proletariat so i mean you can uh... say that not, I,
2: that, I mean, not in the the manifestos. The manifestos is tricky. Um, maybe the the later Marx is better on this. Like this I mean, is yeah. I
3: it, just think
0: it, that
2: Marx, Marx very
3: himself clearly... is kind of like inconsistent with that. Like he talks about a labor army at I I can't remember which point, but he still like has like.
1: I mean, the IWW like, like
3: in the communist it. communist manifesto, he talks about lumping. Right, not right. being revolutionary
2: that, that's part of what I'm specifically. thinking about well
1: I think we have to look at how Marx's views developed for example right, right. In oh. the, the, the program for the French workers party specifically says that the emancipation of the productive classes is the emancipation of all of humanity despite race or sex and there's plenty of other quotes that I can dig up that prove that he wasn't a worker yeah productive no, no,
2: no. right but th- Produ- that, yeah uh, that's something that comes with Marx's later studies in political economy. What he, kind of, he kind of transcends the old, like Ricardo sort of the thing is, understanding about, that in, he has.
1: In the early days, Marx's argument against this humanistic kind of, you know, communistic idea that oh, like all humans are you know brothers and sisters and we're all just one you know <laughs> big family where we all get along. And Marx is trying to argue against these people that no. We're not all just one big family because we're divided by class. And so, you know, there is a reason why he would, you know, emphasize class difference over general human unity in his early works or, again, like the Communist Manifesto. I That's
0: kind right. of want to create like a card game where <laughs> you just take like different quotes from Marx and then you have like different subjects and you, mm, you get like mm. the hand of like the different quotes and you have to like assemble an argument about like different things. And then like, you know, for example, like the transition Jay. to communism and be like, and you, you know, and whoever like has like the best hand wins or whatever. Yeah. I mean, fucking... that,
2: that's a great idea.
3: It's, it's uh, kind of like interpreting the Bible in a way.
2: <laughs> it is, but yeah, because there's a bunch of mutually contradictory things depending on the different well, parts yeah. of Marx's and life. I
1: think you can read Marx in order to argue about v factory proletariat and V or what the nihilist communists, I think are just syndicalists and not communists call the essential proletariat. You can find parts of Marx that justify that argument. But I think that you can also find Marx that, you know, argue that the proletariat is a more is essentially the entire community of humanity like reliant on the wage fund.
2: I think and- I just think a big reason why is because Marx is substantiating the idea that profit is 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 theft. <laughs> I mean, not, I not, think, not, he not, argue. not, not, idea
1: though. Like, yeah. Also, it's a big mistake to, to reduce
3: to be on- surplus value. To be honest, I, I think in general, Marxists should like move away from just like picking out quotes from Marx to make their arguments and start mm-hmm. focusing on like, Empirical information and trying to work on like theory that applies to reality rather than trying to figure out what specifically Marx said, because it it's like no other no other science. If we are going to consider Marxism or historical materialism or whatever we're going to call it a scientific sort of program. We we shouldn't be like focusing on how do we interpret Marx and that sort of thing. We should be focusing well, on it, it it always how starts does way... this
0: relate to reality. Well yeah, how it always starts to, relate to like bolster your argument, right? Where it's well, like I mean, I have this yeah, thing and then sure. it's like, well this and this is what Marx actually thought. And that's what dad says, so shut up. <laughs> well, the point I'm just trying to make a point that
1: Marxism historically is not necessarily workerism. And I think that a conflation between the two is due to you know the general is, is due to a general failure in actually exercising a Marxist program
2: all right re- I'm gonna re- I'm gonna re- if
1: we look at the 20th century
2: I'm gonna oh. reframe that there's two there's two broad traditions of looking at the working class that come under Marxism and this one is true and the other one's kind of bullshit even if it was more widespread because it honestly was that was well, a predominant was understanding because
1: it was easier for a trade union
2: bureaucracy. Like, I mean, it's, it's what almost everyone associates with Marxism.
3: I mean, the whole point of production thing, though, is like a like if if the if you lose like that point at you lose that you lose a lot of the strength that you actually had though. That's the thing. Yeah, it's like I mean, you can see this empirically to the point like there's a general trend of automation and then there's a general decline in union membership. And there's a general offensive that happened around the same time that just happened to go along with this sort of trend of like increasing automation of production and a general decrease in the amount of like workers that were involved in production specifically. And you,
1: well, I just, you have I that think in that, like the idea that workers in production, have to be able to withdraw their labor en masse is kind of just uh, it's an idea of revolution where the revolution happens through a mass strike. Like I, know, I, don't,
2: I, I don't think it has to be a mass strike, but there has to be some power on the workers' end. But the and
1: problem is like this power none. doesn't yeah, develop specifically in the point of production.
3: I'm not arguing necessarily yeah. that it can be developed in the point of sure, production. Sure, but if let's
2: let's that. turn it back to Brenner. Brenner is clearly arguing that. That is what Brenner is arguing. Brenner Brenner isn't talking as much about stuff outside the workplace. This yeah, is what Brenner is arguing that
1: you need. I think, and this is the problem of Brenner is that he kind of has this economistic argument that you need, we need like you know the workers in the factories to to rise up and do direct action, and that will get you know that'll give us a base that we can use to build a real communist party. Is that, though? Because
0: he, he also he also talks about the civil rights movements, and he talks about just kind of, right. like, mass movements in general. So I don't know if he's actually literally just talking about, like, the factory proletariat. That's where, like, the movementism actually kind of creeps into this a little bit. That's true. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, yeah, he's just, that's he's just true. saying, like, you need mass movements that use direct action in the street, basically.
0: So um, in Section 3, he talks about uh, the Jesse Jackson campaign, um, which, again, is really interesting because I remember um, during the whole Sanders thing, um, you know, reading Black Agenda Report, and they were w- one of the few people really harping on how this is basically like Jesse Jacks. This was Jesse Jackson all over again. Yeah. Ha! And... You know, reading through this because I didn't know that much about you know the Jesse Jackson thing. You know, it's kind of before my time. I I mean, by the time I was sort of beginning to pay attention to politics, like Jesse Jackson was like the butt of jokes. You know what I mean? Um, Yeah,
1: and uh, I think it's interesting how you had like this relates to the new communist movement. How like in the sixties and seventies, you had all these like students who went into the factories and converted to Marxism, Leninism, and Maoism and stuff, and then. By the 80s, you know, they went from trying to build, like, ML parties who are anti visionists into, like, supporting the Jesse Jackson campaign. And I really, I think that kind of kind of shows a weakness of movementism itself. Right. But I think that the Jesse Jackson campaign was a breakthrough where the radical left decided that, like, we need to work with the Democrats and kind of set up the situation we have today.
0: Well, and you see, you know, also in some ways, like, precursors to Obama, too, in that so people went in and they built these organizations that were designed to kind of be, like, popular mass movement building things, but the, but all the efforts of them went into building the Jesse Jackson campaign, and when the campaign was over, those things completely collapsed, because they didn't have a raison d'etre beyond getting Jesse Jackson primary votes. Um, it also talks as, you know, you also see, like, the repetition of history in that, you um, Jesse Jackson obviously endorsed Mondale, and mm. because there was literally nothing to compel him from doing otherwise.
2: Right. The thing um, about the program and changing the Democratic program, and yeah, how yeah. Brenner's whole like a cumulative critique throughout the essay that you know they're gonna go for things that are on the left end of you know you know the American political spectrum, and they're gonna look pretty radical. And a lot of the stuff that was he was even talking about throughout the article really did approach social democratic program, but they're never going to fight for it because look at this little, you know, rational choice picture of what their, what their, uh, uh, incentive world is like.
0: (laughs) Exactly. And like, what's, what's so depressing about reading this piece too, is because they talk about how, you know, in the late 1970s, there was a point where they had, you know, the house, the white house, uh, the Senate. They they had everything they needed, yeah, and uh, and they just they basically sat on their hands the entire time, and then nothing happened, and then they wonder uh, why all of a sudden the electorate starts voting Republican, and the exact same thing happened for a much briefer period. That's exactly
2: like, what I thought, Shane.
0: For a much briefer period, um, you know, once once Obama was when Obama won in 08, yeah, uh, they had everything they needed, and then they were like, well, we actually need a supermajority <laughs> to do anything.
2: Because um, we're not we're not going to use reconciliation. We want right. to be consensus driven,
0: right? And all, gonna, yeah, all of a sudden they were yeah. all of a sudden they were occupy for for like five for some reason they became occupy yeah. for two years. Uh, once they had all the power, that's and, right. And that was actually one of the that did actually you know I briefly like flirted with being like supportive of the Democrat. Like I voted for a bunch of Democrats the first time I voted in 2008. Yeah, yeah, and. Same. As soon as like the healthcare thing happened and they couldn't do anything, I was like, okay, yeah, that's what I thought. I figured that I knew this. I knew this was bullshit. <laughs> I'll believe, now I believe in nothing no more. I'm going to law school.
2: <laughs> you know, I, so, I, I almost literally did that, Jake. You have no idea. <laughs> but I—that's I, when I read uh, Bernie Sanders' uh, autobiography and was like, wow, socialism. And that's <laughs> when it all began. Is I when were- yeah, there there was the Obama uh, uh, majority across the two branches of government. And they couldn't get dick done. And I remember when they lost the public option. That is when I became a socialist.
1: Yeah. And I think it but also shows that people act with the political opportunities that are available. And then when those political opportunities end up failing on them, there's that potential for like a new political opportunity to develop. But the thing is that you have to have some previous existing infrastructure in order to build up upon that discontent if that makes sense
0: well and And what the one thing
1: seems like all we really have today is the dsa which is you know really kind of in the midst of an inter party struggle to kind of break away from the dem tailing social dem reformism that you know
3: brenner mean pseudo
1: party yeah like pseudo party. is very like arguing very much like a lot of these critiques from Brenner really could be channeled against the DSA.
2: He's no, a centrist. Definitely. He's a, he's a uh, in the McNair sense, he's a centrist. He really wants to have class independent uh, yeah. parties. Like, which is interesting because his critiques are so suffocating in that kind of structuralist way where it seems like, yeah. oh God, who could possibly do anything with this? It's all, Honestly, it's like reading Michelle's. And the iron law well, of oligarchy. Yeah. Like, I mean, like, but I think it really it's
1: just, the centrist part, though. Like the, the aspect of centrist or whatever you want to call it. I hate calling it centrist. Is but, yeah, you know, sure. It's just the strategy M- of patience McNerist, You know, is that, you know, we don't have to. We don't have to have some kind of like spark that lights a prairie fire and creates like a spontaneous mass riot, that, you know, ruptures through everything. We kind of just have to, to patiently build our forces. And I think that where the CPGB don't follow the strategies, they don't actually like go out and try to organize the working class. Which I mean, is, yeah. I, I have no idea is, I think, what they do. And I think Brenner yeah. is arguing that this is an essential part of it—that you actually have to to build organizations that can challenge class enemies locally, and then challenge public policy locally, right. and build from there, basically.
0: This might be kind of like a detour, and we can cut it if so. Um, but um like i was reading this article in uh in the weekly worker like this week and they were t- it was basically from the people who are involved in like labor party Marxists, which is essentially a cbgb front as far as i know yeah um, and they were talking about like theses on like a corbin government and they were basically outlining this thing where it what they were what they were outlining for what would happen in terms of like the deep state and the chances that he would be allowed to form a government and the chances that he would actually be willing to implement socialist policies and fight the market and this and that. You know, it basically read like like set like Chile, essentially. And they're talking about how it was gonna be necessary to form like popular militias and go against the army in England, and like just like reading reading like the levels of like the kind of shit that would be necessary for like a Corbyn government to work by their own admission kind of maybe like question like the seriousness of what they're even doing because like Mm. is like the CBGB like running drills and like like recruiting like (laughs) recruit no are they running are they are they like recruiting like former IRA specialists in like like urban guerrilla war like are they doing anything the
1: point there though is that like for a Corbyn government to actually be a real victory for the left like there actually would have to be like a, a revolution and like they're just basically saying like hey like listen like you're not ready for fucking like real ass
0: shit like <laughs> but you know, i mean because i sometimes i sit there sometimes i sit there and i see corbin out yeah. i'm like i'm you know you get that like grass is always greener because it's like oh you know like he isn't total shit on imperial right. we, have, we have bernie here right that's all we have here we have bernie oh so we look over. oh he isn't totally shit on imperialism and um you know he, he made that video where he basically told the banks pretty explicitly to go fuck themselves you know what i mean and he, he does this and he does that but then it's like when you think about it it really is kind of the same problem
2: yeah, um,
0: yeah. which is yeah so like um, the, the, it, there's this it poses like the exact same dangers
3: to link this tangent back to the text robert brenner actually gives an example of like what would happen if a government actually tried to go full hard with social democracy
0: yeah, just melaram. like
3: go yeah melaram uh, he basically gives the example of the socialist government in France, which tried to go hard with social democracy, and it mm-hmm. ended up causing like incredible inflation and capital flight. And this was just Keynesianism. This was just like Keynesian sort of mm-hmm. social democracy. Not even they didn't even try to like do any any weird stuff with planning like Chile did. It, it was just yeah, was exactly. Just,
1: I always just ask myself: Does do the Jacobin people, like the main editorial line people, do they ever actually like think about the Mitterrand government? This <laughs> and it does. I think they do actually yeah. kind of talk about capital flight, but then they just like throw in some like bullshit, like mass strikers, direct action from below will keep the capitalist in line.
0: Yeah, so, does I that mean, mean we're like, gonna like go to their houses and like tie them up? I mean, like, what does that mean? You know, like, yeah, all the, I mean, oh, the like, capitalists. I think- they're going to get on their private jets, and they're going mean, to they're gonna see those giant marches of people get smaller and smaller and smaller, and then they're going to call their banker in the fucking Bahamas and be like, all right, I'm set, you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, you know,
1: well, I think like, we really need to take what Ankle stuff. said seriously, which is that in order to have a revolution, you know, you have to have support from the majority of the working class, and you need to be able to count on the army to mutiny, which is basically reliant on a general crisis of the state itself and yeah, so yeah
0: yeah well, and like history's borne that out repeatedly like any
1: attempt to kind of overthrow capitalism is going to fail and any attempt to just tweak it through social democracy too much is going to fail unless there's a threat that that's going to happen
0: good old angles yeah exactly yeah. um yeah so but yeah back to the um back to the jesse jackson thing it, it really was fascinating to see like how much you know and and he talks to d2 like i guess I wonder if the people from, from Black Agenda Report have read this, because he goes, he talks a lot about the ascent of, like, the black middle class as, like, inheriting the sort of social movement from the civil rights, even though it was, you know, greatly diminished, and how a lot of the, you know, gains that have been made for blacks, like, since then, have primarily been geared towards benefiting, you know, like, the petty bourgeois middle, middle strata of it. Um, mm-hmm. But that's actually what's interesting about, like, recent years, is that, you know, for the first time in a while, like... The expressions, the popular expressions of the black movement were um, not only like tied to riots, but were kind of like actually trying to like legitimate those riots um, publicly, as opposed to like, for instance, like the LA outbursts in like the early 1990s. Yeah, like, that's
1: a maybe. good point because like a lot of people shit on Black Lives Matter, but it actually is. I think that they are like actually pushing a lot against the white narrative about these riots a lot more than perhaps you know, the Jesse Jackson campaign would have and they are basically acquiescing less to liberalism than past similar movements have and I think that is, you know, something to congratulate them for.
0: Um, Yeah, it just made me think because you talked a lot about um, how, you know, you could see like a microcosm of the broader left in terms of how um, the black movement shifted more towards electoralism, they got a bunch of mayorships and then they basically became just as neoliberal as, you know, anybody else who would get in there.
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it was going basically... back to the Black Lives Matter sort of thing, is it even technically still alive? Didn't it? Well, I mean, it They're was still... always sort of a brand, but like most of the people that are still associated with that sort of like Black Lives Matter label are like the NGO activists that are in the Democratic I...
0: Party. I don't know about you, but I still get my safety pin box every month. <laughs> Well, I what I'm saying, I am is, so woke now. You have no idea.
1: I think at that point, that's probably true. But I do think that when you had the riots in Ferguson and Baltimore, like there was actually, like a mass kind of not maybe not, I don't know. There was a sentiment that there was a kind of mass sentiment that you know these riots were justified and you know they were making like a just cause and that this rebellion was, you know, the rightful response to racial oppression in the U.S. And a lot of people were in popular media outlets were actually defending that line where it's harder to right. see that
3: happen twenty years ago. Right. I I'm not denying that.
1: Yeah, like I feel like the way of looking at BLM is that there kind of was like a genuine spontaneous like, you know, rebellion against police violence for black democratic rights, but it was basically absorbed into a democratic NGO complex. Because, let's just face it, that's the, that's the structural political alternative that exists. There is no other.
0: So, the end of this gets rather ominous, and he begins to basically kind of predict the rise of the far right. He even talks about, when he talks about the, um, Mitterrand, he actually talks about Le Pen in France, but that was Daddy Le Pen. Um, and I just want to like read a <laughs> brief section here. Um, okay. To the extent that workers have turned to tax cuts... They are unavoidably joining the attack on the living standards of those who are dependent upon welfare and other social services, above all blacks and women, to the extent that workers are defending their own positions in a, quote, colorblind and, quote, sexblind manner, through defending the seniority list against affirmative action, they're defending, they are attacking blacks and women in still another way. Many working people who attempt to defend their positions with these methods do not intend to profit their employers or to gain at the expense of other workers, but this is in fact what they are doing. Their actions are, in effect, chauvinist, racist, and sexist. Inevitably, therefore, they are opened up to the reactionary worldviews which will rationalize their conduct. Uh, and I thought that was really interesting. Ultimately, as workers cease to find that was any actually pra- really good. Ult- ultimately as workers cease to find any practical basis for the collective defense of their own lives, they cannot help but perceive the world as dog-eat-dog competitive struggle. And as a result come to consider more attractive those pro-family and fundamentalist religious ideologies which make this perception their point of departure. Uh, Whatever oppression the patriarchal family brings, it can, with some conviction, still offer the only non-commodity, non-commercially competitive relationships which remain intact, i.e. between husband and wife and between parents and children. It can, therefore, with some legitimacy, offer the the reality of a non-capitalist haven in a heartless, competitive world." Um, Exactly,
1: exactly. I think what he's pointing out is that if you do not have a political alternative to capitalism that is liberatory, such as communism, that basically the the far-right anti-capitalists, who aren't really truly anti-capitalists, they're just corporatists, but they, you know, feed off anti-capitalist sentiment, will be the ones who benefit because they speak to the immediate, like, basic-ass interest of workers and as individual subjects and not a collective subject because, yeah. because the class doesn't exist as a collectivity and is objectively atomized. That means that workers will, you know, struggle amongst themselves for, you know, the, the scraps that exist and see minorities as competitors and then that can make their, you know, that makes far right ideology viable. And so it kind of makes sense why, with that condition the left has kind of shifted towards identity politics because there is a a sort of truth to the fact that there is a reactionary white workerism that is not really questioned
0: right but without placing it in like the problem is like without placing it within the context of class you end up basically kind of like reifying
1: identity categories yeah exactly
0: Um. and
1: yeah, and I'm not going to say they're both equally bad responses of a situation, but in a way, they're both, you know, ideological responses to real situations. Yeah.
2: Well, I don't know. Some of these I, I, these categories are real abstractions. Like, they're things that are kind of, like, made actual by social practice. Like, sort sure. of, uh, the, And those things, some of those you really got to read into the base. Uh, what Brenner is talking about here in the, uh, the family as a, is not just an ideological realm. This is part of the base. This is part of the essential power structure to how uh, the individual isolated units of, of working class people are, are at least hoping to dwell because, again, this is in the 80s and we're about to enter, you know, 30 years of fragmenting uh, family yeah. bonds. And so e- even this is like, you know this was a, a sweetheart deal for the white working class and it was being, it's, you know, it's going to get dismantled. This well, yeah, country. I mean,
1: you got to read uh, when affirmative action was right too, because there was the white male working class that really got a sweetheart deal. And right. It's really amazing how much equality between white workers was increased, but inequality between black and white workers was decreased and how basically there was a reimposition of women as you know, simply existing in a domestic role in the post-war era, and yeah. so when you have the neoliberal collapse of this um, sort of setup, you know the family, which seems kind of like a refuge from capitalism, but it's really just a micro a reactionary microcosm within capitalism, becomes appealing as this sort of shield from capitalist disintegration. And so reactionary ideologies of an anti-capitalist veneer seem appealing because, you know, this kind yeah. of traditionalism does actually have an anti-capitalist element to it.
3: Yeah, even even mainstream hacks like Ross do that understand that like the nuclear family structure that makes American conservative possible our start, well, at least starting to understand is that the nuclear family structure that made American conservatism possible was linked to like the development of this sort of Americanized social democracy that was like suburban in its nature and linked to home ownership and family and that sort of thing and the white worker,
2: yeah, I this important... is that's the post-war compromise the u s. got instead yeah. of having a universal welfare state, they had a, you know, racist, like redlined, uh, you know, white shining city on a hill.
1: But I think that was really important as a, I think that was a deliberate project. Like the creation of the post war welfare state was a deliberate project to declass the American, you know, working class. Cause there was the idea that suburbia, you know, was specifically designed under the um, idea of giving workers home ownership. So they felt like they would have a stake in. Uh... You know, the yeah. person who developed suburbia, I can't remember his name. Um, fuck. It was, he said, no man who owns a home has time to be a communist. And yeah. so you really have to connect the development of suburbia and the development of the kind of post-war welfare state in connection with, you know, the Cold War. And then you also have to look at the compromise of labor and the government in the 1940s that eventually happened due to political reasons. And then also the compromise labor labor made in World War II, and the general integration of the American labor movement with the state.
0: I'd like to read, just like the last, very last, um, part of the last paragraph here real quick. Okay. Okay. With their traditional parties and trade unions making a mockery of class-based collective struggles of self-defense, it is hardly unexpected that they are turning in increasing numbers to those political forces who will give coherent ideological rationalizations for the class collaborationist and individualistic strategies they've been forced to live by. Is it really surprising that Le Pen, with his barely concealed fascism, has emerged from the rubble of Mitterrand's experiment and capitalist transformation under socialism? Do today's American exponents of a revitalized social democracy from within social democracy believe that they can achieve better results than the French socialists through the agency of Mitterrand's feeble American counterparts and their even feebler reformist perspectives. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's... Trying to reckon with, like, what happened with Mitterrand in France is something that... You know the people, the sort of the Jack of the Knights and the Chapo's and the DSAers, um, really kind of have to explain, because you know, Cerise. Syri- I mean, the Mitterrand I- example is probably a much clearer, I think, ex- even though it's further back in history, a much clearer example than, say, Syriza, which is under maybe a different kind of duress than um, we would be in the West if we, if we. Uh, if there I was a social democracy
1: like so soon that there isn't historical kind of consciousness about it to see what it really was in the long term.
2: Yeah, that's, good, uh, that's a good point. Tom O'Brien's podcast from Alpha to Omega just came back, like just dropped a new episode. They've been off for a while, and to- I saw that. Yeah, well, it's one of my favorites, and uh, uh, he had um, uh, Sheehan, I believe her name is, uh, the author of Marxism and Philosophy of Science. Uh, do do a sort of retrospective, like her new book is a retrospective on Syriza. And she was like a total booster and got totally knocked on her ass, just like everyone else being like, what the fuck? You know, like, yeah. so I, I don't know. Uh, uh From Alpha to Omega, I, I love them. It's very, uh, uh, Tom runs a really technical podcast and it's pretty sweet, but he's, you know, he was, I think a bit like, I don't know. He got swept up in what people were getting swept up in over there. I don't really blame him. You know, when I, Like, but now that he's back, he's you know that interview kind of brought out a sort of like critical streak. That and that's what I think you know we need to be doing as like lefty podcasters is like if there is anything that pops up, we have to kind of throw tomatoes at it. And I I don't know what else to do. I don't
1: think we should just throw tomatoes at anything that pops up. (laughs) There are things that pop up that are worth supporting. Like I think migrant union movement in Italy is worth supporting. And sure. The vanguard of the global working class,
2: but um, yeah, yeah. But what, what you know, what can we like? What's what's around us that we can support? That
0: oh, we got uh, resistmas coming up. We got resistmas. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah.
1: Well, the thing is, there's a lot around us to oppose. We just don't have the basis to oppose it, which is what's kind of like the point of Brenner's argument. Is that like, yeah, you can team up with the Democrats and. Joined their resistance against things that are shitty, but in the end, like nothing's going to change, and you're just helping them shore up votes. And as long as we stay in this cycle of activity, and, like the working class is not going to go anywhere, and neither is the political socialist movement because the political socialist movement can't go anywhere without the working class.
2: Yeah, this is the point of good communist political science to make things that seem totally outlandish and foolish. Like, to try to, you know, all right, look, we're just going to do a long-term political analysis and see how this turns out every time.
1: <laughs> about, you know, and about the Jacobinites' inability to deal with the Mitterandites, I really think that we should, you know, maybe do an episode so at some point on their newest edition, which I've heard is even worse. yeah doesn't like
3: like chipper argue for like market socialism or something like that
1: capitalism as the transitional demand for market socialism that
2: you know chipper my
1: understanding we have to i have to read it first but like i would like to do an episode on that god
2: damn it every time that's a very long sound. Well, I mean, you know, Chibber is uh, hes sort of like a second-generation analytical Marxist, and like yeah. a lot of the analytical Marxists, he's a market socialist because uh, state socialism failed and markets exist, so if you're an empiricist, that's what yeah. you do. I, um, think,
1: um, I think Chibber does get a lot of unfair shit from some people. Like, I remember seeing someone call him the, the Jordan Peterson of the left. <laughs> that's horse <laughs> shit yeah exactly he does have solid Brennerite right historical analysis skills but it's just just sad to see him like promoting such garbage politics
2: yeah that's horse shit uh chipper would never go on zero squared <laughs> so it's uh, I'm it's, actually look. that's gonna be interesting by the way but um are we done here do we have any other thoughts on
0: brenner any um,
1: final thoughts comrades
3: um this is pretty good yeah i like it actually isn't Yeah, isn't Brenner's politics also, like, socked them now, basically?
0: Yeah, he he, he endorsed Bernie.
1: Yeah, he endorsed Bernie, so he... Yeah, I feel like this pamphlet he wrote in... Or this essay he wrote in 1985 needs to be, like, thrown back at him.
0: That's it for this week. Next week, we'll be discussing an article titled Organization of Materialism. Considerations on Contemporary Leftism by Jean Allen If you want to get hold of us you can message us on Facebook or you can email us at swampsidechats at gmail.com If you'd like to support the show uh, give us a like on Facebook leave us a review on iTunes or uh, tell two friends about us and then they'll tell two friends and they'll tell two friends and pretty soon everyone will know who we are That is, of course, assuming that you have friends. But if you don't have friends, uh, keep listening to the podcast and you can pretend like you do. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.